0: Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow my journey as an amateur piano player, striving to play Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day, and the road that it takes to get there. Every week, we dissect one of the pieces that I encounter along this road, exploring the history surrounding the work and the music within. The goal is that we all leave each week a little more knowledgeable and appreciative of classical music. And can build on that foundation to talk about more complex works in the future. This is episode 8.1, the start of a new series. We've spotlighted Bach in the Baroque period, then Beethoven in the Classical period, and we just finished up with Chopin in the Romantic period. Now we're going to move into the post-Romantic period, starting roughly at the turn of the century in the year 1900. When we've touched on this music era in the past, we stuck with the tried-and-true French Impressionist composers Debussy and Ravel. But for this series, we're going to spotlight a new composer that started his career a little bit before those two, and helped to inspire their Impressionist movement, a man by the name of Eric Satie. Satie was born in France in 1866. He faced early tragedy when his mother died while he was only six years old, so he was sent to live with his grandparents. His grandparents enrolled him in music classes, where he appeared to excel at an early age. He spent a lot of time in his youth with his uncle Adrian, a charismatic man nicknamed Seabird for his wild, free-spirited demeanor which is likely responsible for influencing Sati's own progressive, unconventional personality. Sati's grandmother died when he was 12 years old, so he moved back to Paris to live with his father, who was just about to remarry to a woman who was a piano teacher, and ended up being a major influence to Sati's musical career. Satie wrote several short salon pieces with his new stepmother, who taught him the ropes of composition. You know, it's nice to see every now and then that stepmothers outside of fairy tales can actually have a positive influence on children's lives. Encouraged by his own stepmother, at the age of 13, Satie enrolled in the Paris Conservatoire. While he may have been musically talented, young Eric was a miserable student. His teachers said he was lazy and unmotivated, And he ended up getting kicked out. He tried the conservatoire again a few years later, but still couldn't get it together, so he decided to join the military instead. That didn't work out either. The higher ranking officers found him worthless as a soldier and kicked him out for allegedly intentionally infecting himself with bronchitis. He moved out of his father's home or got kicked out, who knows, and moved to an apartment in the famous Parisian neighborhood of Montmartre when he was 21 years old. And this is where his compositional career begins. Satie is difficult to classify as a composer. His early work is technically within the time era of romantic music, but he doesn't quite fit into that realm. He doesn't outright reject romantic ideals, but he pairs them down into something new. He could also be described as Impressionist, perhaps, and he definitely inspired his friends Debussy and Ravel. But his music also clearly stands apart from his French counterparts. Even though his early career overlaps with the Romantic period, I think it's safe to place him in the post-Romantic era, which is why I'm spotlighting him here but I find him less of an Impressionist and more as the early beginnings of modern minimalism. Although with the caveat that the term minimalist was not coined until the 1960s, so it wouldn't be fair or accurate to retroactively label Satie a minimalist. You'll hear the romantic influence of beautiful melodies with melancholic expression, but Satie usually reduced these ideas down to a single melodic line with simple accompaniment. In 1917, Satie described his own music as furniture music, meaning it was intended to be performed by live musicians as background or ambient noise, dressing the scene like furniture. In his own words, Satie describes it as a music which will be part of the noise of the environment. I think of it as melodious, softening the noise of the knives and forks at dinner, not dominating them, not imposing itself. It would fill up those heavy silences that sometime fall between friends dining together. It would spare them the trouble of paying attention to their own banal remarks, and at the same time it would neutralize the street noise which so indiscreetly enters into the play of conversation. To make such music would be to respond to a need It's the exact opposite of Beethoven, who demanded that musical performance at hand deserves the audience's utmost attention. Beethoven would have likely criticized Satie's school of thought, and would have found him regressive. This genre of furniture music was revived decades after Satie's death in 1952 by a composer named John Cage, this time labeled ambient music. Ambient music would inspire composers like Philip Glass and Steve Reich to birth the musical movement of minimalism in the 1960s. And that's why I would argue that Satie is the spiritual father of minimalism, even though it would be unfair to label him as a minimalist, since the term did not apply at the time. One of Satie's first major works is a trio of pieces he wrote in 1888 called The Gymnopedie. It's an unusual title that today is almost exclusively associated with Seti, but whose origin can be traced back to the Greek word gymnopédia, referring to an ancient festival celebrated in Sparta every year, where a bunch of naked youths danced and sang to celebrate the Spartan victory in Thraea and the god Apollo. Now, I know we haven't listened to these pieces yet, but let me tell you how Satie instructs the performer to play these three works. Number one, slowly and painfully. Number two, slowly and sadly. And number three, slowly and gravely. So I find it difficult to believe that these three works were inspired by a naked celebratory festival, given instructions like that. A theory that I find a little easier to believe involves the definition of gymnopédie from Dominique Mondo's Musical Dictionary, where it is defined as, quote, a nude dance, accompanied by song, which youthful Spartan maidens danced on special occasions. So while this definition isn't quite historically accurate to the festival, it may be the picture that Satie had in mind while he was writing these works. The first and third gymnopédie, were published the year that they were written, in 1888, but the second one was published seven years later, in 1895. It's uncertain exactly why the gap exists, but there were several advertisements, including in the famous Parisian café Chat Noir, that the second gymnopédie was coming soon, so maybe it was some kind of advertising ploy. Seven years seems like a long time to keep your fans waiting, though. Satie's popularity began to take a dive in 1896, which caused his financial situation to take a hit. Around the same time, Debussy was soaring to popularity, and he decided to help his friend Satie out by arranging the gymnopédie for orchestra and drawing attention to Satie's work. Oddly enough, even though the three gymnopédies sound remarkably similar, Debussy decided that the second one did not lend itself to orchestra. Okay. And then, for no apparent reason, he also flipped the order of Satie's original numbering. So Satie's first gymnopédie is Debussy's third, and Satie's third gymnopédie is Debussy's first. Debussy's decisions make absolutely no sense to me. It seems like it might be a power trip, but I have absolutely nothing to back that up except pure speculation. I guess you just can't question genius. To be great is to be misunderstood. Isn't that what they say? The Gymnopédie are the most famous works of Satie's career, and still pop up everywhere in modern culture. There's a good chance that even if you don't recognize these works by that unusual French title, that you might be familiar with the music. Like, for example, in the movies. There's a scene in the Royal Tenenbaums between Luke and Owen Wilson where instead of dialogue, this piece plays. You might have also heard it on television in the recent popular Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, during the scene where Beth's adopted mother plays the piano. That piece is Citi's Gymnopédie No. 1 or maybe in video games, like Persona 2 or Mother 3, and even in modern pop music. Lana Del Rey used Gymnopédie Number no. 1 to close out the music video for her song Carmen. And in Janet Jackson's hit song, Someone to Call My Lover, she not only borrowed the famous guitar riff from the band America's Ventura Highway, but she also sampled Siti's Gymnopédie Number 1 for the chorus. Check it out. You have to pay attention to the chiming in the background. <laughs> and compare it to the opening phrase in Gymnopédie No. 1. This piece even popped up in a novel I read from a few years back called The Alice Network by Kate Quinn. The novel is fictional, but has historical elements of a female spy network during World War I. This is a passage from the novel, where the villain of the story plays piano for one of the girls. He began to play, a fragile melody that rose and fell like the sound of rain. Satie, he said one of the gymnopedies. Do you know them? He continued to play, the melody soft and lulling. Satie is an impressionist, but less indulgent than Debussy. He has a clarity and elegance that is uniquely French, I have always thought. He evokes melancholy without unnecessary flourishes, like a beautiful woman in a perfectly simple dress, who knows not to tart it up with too many scarves. I half agree with the guy. Definitely appreciate the references to Satie's minimalist approach, and find the simple dress analogy pretty apt. But let's not be too harsh on Debussy. Indulgent? I guess that's why he's the villain. So let's get into our piece of the day and take a look at the first gymnopédie. Also probably the most well-known piece of Satie's entire career. The piece is set in three-four triple meter and marked slowly and painfully. It opens with the steady accompaniment from the left hand that will carry through the entire piece. Then, a gentle melody emerges in the right hand. The piece opens in the key of D major, but does not follow a conventional harmonic structure. It shifts to D minor, then A minor, which gives a moment of minor melancholy. And Satie does this while exploring interesting chord choices, especially for this time. The constantly shifting tonal center gives the piece a wandering element that, when combined with the rocking left hand accompaniment, makes the listener feel like they're going for a ride on a cloud. It's incredibly dreamy stuff, intentional simplicity. While Satie didn't use the phrase furniture music to describe his own music until 1917, I think the Gymnopedies fit this sentiment fairly well. Actually, Satie would probably be pretty annoyed with me for even trying to analyze his work, as he viewed it more as background noise. Speaking of interesting chord choices, Satie decides to mark the end of this work with a dissonant chord choice that always hits me a bit, like a small nail on a chalkboard. But then the piece just floats on until the end, where it ends in D minor, instead of the opening chord of D major, ending the piece on a more melancholic note than the tone set in the beginning. So let's listen to the entire thing, a precursor to ambient music that tends to slow everything down for a few minutes. This is Eric Satie's famous Gymnopédie No. 1. It may not surprise you that this piece was not very popular at its time of release. It broke a lot of the rules of romantic harmony and has very little development. It mostly just drifts along aimlessly. It would take around 20 years for this avant-garde work to start garnering the appreciation that it deserves. Guess the public had to catch up to a piece that was ahead of its time. Next week, We'll continue our discussion of Eric Satie with an exploration of another one of his works called A Nacien. and we'll talk about some of Satie's many eccentricities. You can find the standalone recording of this work directly in the podcast feed. If you'd like to hear my recordings of the other two gymnopedies, check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud. And you will find them there along with all of the other tracks that we've discussed so far on this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody, or email me at podcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out with any questions or comments. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode. Thanks as always for your time and your ears. And I'll talk to you all next week. Where's that outro?